Over the past few decades, there has been grave concern that maternal cocaine use would present a population of children with more than their share of physical, mental, and emotional struggles. Many of these infants have been studied carefully as they progress toward adolescence and beyond. And our data suggests the impact on their development may not be as dramatic as we once thought. What are we now learning about the long-term effects of prenatal exposure to cocaine? You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to a special segment, Focus on Psychiatry. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Shu, practicing general pediatrician and author. Our guest is Dr. Ira Chasnoff, professor of clinical pediatrics at the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Chicago, where he is also president of the Children's Research Triangle. Welcome, Dr. Chasnoff. Thank you. So how common was prenatal cocaine exposure in the 1980s and 90s? Well, when we first began doing this work in Chicago, we found that the rates were relatively high in various, of course, they varied across populations. In general, we were seeing in some parts of the Illinois population upwards to as much as 5 or 6% of pregnancies, but those were in isolated populations. Overall, the general rate has stayed around 2% of pregnancies. And what were the biggest concerns about prenatal cocaine exposure on the developing fetus and the child? Initially, our biggest concern was we didn't know if it had any impact or not, and that's what drove us to begin doing some studies. And the first step was recognizing that there was an impact on pregnancy. We found that babies whose mothers used cocaine during pregnancy in general had significantly lower birth weights and also a smaller head circumference at birth. We also saw increased rates of abruptions, preterm labor and delivery, and intrauterine growth retardation. What is the mechanism of action of the effects of cocaine on the developing fetus? Well, this is where it gets complicated because it does not appear that cocaine has a direct impact on fetal growth, but that it's mediated through its vasoconstrictive effects on the umbilical arteries. The reason drug addicts use cocaine is because cocaine blocks dopamine reuptake. So you get excess dopamine at the distal nerve ending. That's what produces the high. But dopamine also has a vasoconstrictive effect. And there were some very nice animal studies done that showed that when pregnant sheep were given cocaine, you got vasoconstriction of the umbilical arteries and a significant drop in FiO2 in the fetus. They then injected the fetus directly with cocaine and showed that the impact of the cocaine was worse when they gave it to the mother than when they gave it directly to the fetus. And so cocaine's effects mainly are through that vasoconstrictive action on the umbilical arteries, causing chronic and or acute hypoxia when the woman would take the cocaine. So do you typically see a withdrawal-type syndrome in the newborn babies or not? No, there is no true withdrawal syndrome that's been identified in cocaine-exposed infants. However, we do see significant neurobehavioral changes, and that's been documented in several various studies. And these neurobehavioral changes, give me an example of what kind of symptoms you might see and and what ages of children you'd see them. Well, for a lot of the infants, we see difficulty with what we call orientation, that is, the ability to respond to stimuli in the environment, and also difficulties with state regulation, so that an infant who has been prenatally exposed to cocaine has difficulty moving from a quiet sleeping state to an alert aroused state, but rather they can ping pong back and forth fairly rapidly. 
Now, all of this, of course, is mediated by a variety of factors, including dose of the mother, the most recent dose before delivery, and then some aspects that affect how powerful the impact is on the fetus just by factors we don't know anything about. Now, many pregnant women who use cocaine may use other substances such as marijuana or tobacco and alcohol. In addition, they may come from families with lower socioeconomic status and household stressors. How do you tease out whether it's cocaine that's causing the effects or if it's some combination of all these factors? Or does it matter because you're going to treat the baby the same either way? That's a great question. And the reality is you can't. And that's why when we talk about this work, we talk about multifactorial risk. And in fact, in our published research articles, the titles you notice as we learn more and more about this would not say cocaine-exposed infants, but always said cocaine-slash-polydrug-exposed infants. One of the things we know about that differentiates women's drug use patterns from men's is that women tend to be polydrug users. And so in all of our years working with infants whose mothers had used cocaine, I never saw a cocaine-exposed infant. I saw lots of infants exposed to cocaine, alcohol, tobacco, marijuana. That was the most common pattern here in the Chicago area. And then we have to use statistical techniques to try to differentiate these various drugs and then also look at environmental factors that you mentioned. So there are multiple factors that have to be taken into consideration. However, the large studies, even when you do this, you do find that cocaine does have an impact that's mediated through multiple other factors. Did you find that a lot of these mothers were interested in breastfeeding, the moms who use cocaine or poly drugs? Did they try to breastfeed their infants? The majority of women that we worked with that were using drugs during pregnancy, I would say only about 20 to 30 percent wanted to breastfeed. But those mothers who wanted to breastfeed, we did encourage that, but we very carefully monitored their drug use patterns. And if a woman had any type of drug use at all, we would insist that she stop breastfeeding. We've published studies that show that cocaine, marijuana, any of these other substances do cross over into the breast milk. If you've just joined us, you're listening to a special segment, Focus on Psychiatry, from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Hsu. Our guest is Dr. Ira Chasnoff, professor of clinical pediatrics at the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Chicago. We're discussing the potential impact of maternal cocaine use on long-term child development. So you'd mentioned that there are some growth delays, especially of head circumference, for example, and some other neurobehavioral effects. What about long-term? Do these kids eventually catch up growth-wise and development-wise? Many of our children that we have followed long-term do catch up from a growth perspective. Developmentally, global cognitive functioning is normal, and I think that's where there is a lot of confusion. So if you just follow these infants and do global testing, such as IQs, developmental scores, the children are going to look pretty normal. Where they get into trouble, and this is the kind of the final common denominator for most drug exposure, is they have difficulties long-term with executive functioning, the ability to plan and complete a task. And if a child has difficulty with executive functioning, then that affects learning and behavior. So it's very easy to look at a large population of children and really find normal results, you know, if you just do regular run-of-the-mill psychological testing. 
However, when you get into the finer-tuned neuropsychological testing, you do find differences with the children. And although the differences may be subtle, they do affect or have the potential to affect their learning and behavior. And so from a clinical perspective, that's where we focus. So just looking at a child, it's impossible to tell if they were exposed to cocaine prenatally. Is that correct? Looking at a child, it's impossible to tell if they were exposed to anything prenatally, except perhaps alcohol. If there was heavy alcohol exposure, of course, the child would have the facial features of fetal alcohol syndrome. But most children who are exposed to alcohol look normal also. So a child in a classroom who's having behavioral problems, you're not going to be able to point at that child and say, ah, his mother used heroin or his mother used cocaine or even, you know, the methamphetamine is is the big issue that people are talking about today. And when it comes down to it, it doesn't really matter, you know, there's not a need to differentiate exactly what the mother was using. You have to address the needs of the child. But if a, a mom's history was known, could a child then be labeled maybe by teachers or doctors as having been a so-called crack baby and, and have that stigma placed on them? Our advice to families, whether we're working with the biological mother or adoptive or foster parents, is you don't provide that kind of information to the school because of the tendency to label. And it's not just cocaine exposure. It's You know, there have been a lot of studies that have looked at how race and social class influence teachers' perceptions of children's behavior and academic performance. And so our advice is you do not share that information with the school unless there's a real need to. And again, you address the needs of the child. You mentioned that the child may be in an adoptive family or a foster family. I think back in the 80s and 90s, a lot of these drug-using moms were ordered to have drug treatment. They may have been sent to jail, and they may have lost custody of their children. Do you feel that that was the right way to approach the problem? No. All of our research and all of our clinical work shows that when you take that kind of punitive approach, the only thing you accomplish is you drive pregnant women out of the prenatal care system, which, of course, then just complicates matters further, and you deprive the children of that early experience of attachment and, and bonding. Now, this is where it's, it, it gets difficult. You know, we have to be sure that we protect the interest of the child. And so my advice when I work at state or federal policy levels is you make decisions in the best interest of the child. In most cases, the best interest for the child is to stay with his biological mother. There is that relationship that's so important to nurture. However, if the child is endangered in any way, then you do make the decision to remove the child and place in the foster care system. But the idea of removing children just because their mother had used cocaine or crack is counterproductive and not in the best interest of the child. Do you have any examples of success stories of a child who maybe did stay with a biological mother? How would we then work with a family such as that to make sure the child develops to the best of his potential? First, you have to help the woman reach clean and sober living, including all substances. And you have to address the issues for the woman. And in many cases, there's violence in families in which there is drug abuse or alcohol abuse. So you have to address issues of violence. And I'm including now, you know, we've shown that these issues cross all social and economic barriers. So we're not talking about one certain group of women. There is a high rate of violence and also mental health difficulties, especially depression. So you address those issues for the mother. 
And most importantly, you address the relationship between the mother and the child. We've shown in our studies that that's probably the single most important factor determining long-term outcome is what kind of relationship and attachment you can help develop. So a lot of our treatment programs in the prenatal period focused on maternal fetal attachment, helping the mother make that loving bond with the unborn child so that when the baby is born, that attachment is there. Children develop in the context of relationships, and so our programs focus on nurturing and supporting that relationship. So let's say a child does get all that nurturing and support. Have you found that there is still a risk for maybe mental health disorders or drug use as these children become adolescents and and young adults? Well, we don't know. There certainly is an increased risk and appears to be a higher rate of difficulties in this population of children. But issues such as mental health and drug abuse, I don't think anybody can differentiate that from the genetic propensity for addiction within a family. Those are questions we just can't answer. Based on what you knew 32 years ago, is this where you thought we would be 32 years from then? We published an article back in 1990 in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed that when you implement those kinds of programs, decisions as to who should get reported to the child welfare system for drug use during pregnancy, those decisions are made based on race and social class. And nothing's changed. In, I believe it was 2002 to 2004, there was a famous Supreme Court case, Ferguson versus Charleston, South Carolina. And wrapped within that case, when you looked at what actually happened in those hospitals, it was very clear that there were racial overtones. So this idea of punitive approaches is still around. And the focus of our work on the prenatal side now is universal screening through, not through urine toxicologies or meconium, but through asking the women some very simple questions that have been validated to show you can identify the highest risk women for using alcohol or drugs, provide them with a brief intervention in the prenatal clinic, and you significantly reduce the rate of abruptions, preterm labor, all of the complications. And there were some recent articles just published that when you use this kind of approach, you save significant amounts of money. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Ira Chesnoff. We've been discussing the potential impact of maternal cocaine use on long-term child development. I'm Dr. Jennifer Shu. You've been listening to a special segment, Focus on Psychiatry, from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and thank you for listening.